Well, it's been an interesting uh, journey through 1 Peter, hasn't it? And maybe this, well, at least for me, and this uh, particular mini-series is a challenging one. It's called Embracing Submission. We've been here now for, this will be our third week, and it'll be our final week in this mini-series within 1 Peter. And when I return from vacation, we'll do our last three sermons from 1 Peter. I know some of you are going to miss them. Uh, Some of you won't. You'll be glad. Like, finally, here we go. And that last series will be called Embracing Sacrifice. But uh, Embracing Submission is our series today. And the full passage we've been discussing is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 12. And I'm actually going to move us a little bit into chapter 5 this week. Um, but chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 12. And to this point, we've gotten through chapter 3, verse 6. So there are very few verses left. During week 1, we discussed the posture of submission. The posture of submission. And I maintained for Peter that the posture of submission is the fundamental posture of God's people in the world. For Peter, we should not be, when it comes to authorities that have been placed over us, we should not be rebellious, we should not be disrespectful, we should not be disdainful, we should not be incorrigible, we should not be people who refuse to be corrected. Our posture is to be one of submission. During week two, we explored the purpose of submission. And I suggested that the purposes of submission in the passage we're dealing with are primarily two. We submit out of a desire for personal transformation, and we submit as a way of sharing the good news of the gospel with our behavior. For Peter, if we wish to be transformed into the image of God as God's image has been embodied in Jesus, then at then sort of as slaves submitted to harsh masters. That was Peter's metaphor. We must be willing to suffer disrespect. We must be willing to suffer uh, indignity. We must be willing to suffer injustice. And by embracing submission in those circumstances, according to Peter, we will be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. And in encouraging wives to submit to their husbands, Peter was advocating that Christian wives submit themselves thoroughly to the expectations of their culture in the home, so that through that behavior, their husbands might be won over to God and to Jesus. Today, we'll bring this short mini-series to a conclusion. We've discussed the posture of submission. We've discussed the purpose of submission. And today, we're going to attempt to hear Peter's exhortations regarding the power of submission. But before we turn to 1 Peter, I want to share some reflections. And I'm, even when I was writing the sermon and working on it this week, I'm not sure how helpful all this thought process right now that I'm going to deliver to you is going to be. But it seems appropriate to me. Maybe you can tell me if I get off track. Don't do it during the service. You can criticize me later. But I think this is going to help us carve out a space in which we need to sort of situate ourselves if we're going to hear Peter's words adequately. And we need to start with just the admission that church culture, from a leadership perspective, throughout much of the history of Christianity in Europe and America, has been male-dominated. And as male-dominated as church leadership has been throughout the larger portion of church history, men have posed a particular problem for Christian communities. What sort of problem, you ask? I know you're all thinking of something, right? Well, I'm thinking particularly in terms of attendance and participation. Attendance and participation. Though men dominate leadership positions in many Christian traditions, and men far outnumber women in the educational institutions in Christian America, 
USA Today has reported recently that women represent the majority of, of parishioners in 21 out of 25 denominations in the United States. A 2008 survey, it's a little bit old now, but it's about as recent as I could find, of 35,000 people by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life reported that only 34% of American men, as compared to 45% of American women, testified to, reporting, um, to attending worship at least weekly. 34% as compared to 45% of women. So the challenge that the involvement of men poses for Christian communities is, is doing some interesting things it always has. Uh, the most current thing is that hundreds of churches are shifting their decor, their worship, and their messages in recent years towards what many are calling guy churches. I read an article a few months ago that argued that worship song choices in many churches are too high, they're too emotional, and they're too sensual for most men. The, artic the article was arguing that if we want men to attend worship and to sing in church when they do attend, we have to start making more masculine song choices. And this is no new trend. Some years ago, churches started noticing that men were more apt to join lodges and other fraternal organizations than they were to join churches. So in the 40s and 50s, in response to that, Christians' men's ministry started in the church, attempting to lure men out of the lodges and other organizations and into the church for male camaraderie and social support. And those ministries thrived for a time, but they were never able to turn the tide and bring men's attendance up to the level of that of women in our churches. The statistics remained virtually unaltered by those ministries. Then again, in the late 1980s, a new ministry to men was taking shape. And perhaps no Christian movement of the 20th century was more aggressive or more innovative or more intentional about reaching out to men. These ministries took the form of males-only rallies and retreats, Promise Keepers, Iron Sharpens Iron, some others. And the more successful versions were rooted in the male headship move movement in evangelicalism. Male headship, we'll talk about that. This movement, which reached its peak in the 1990s, encouraged men to accept their responsibility to be the spiritual leaders in their homes. If the man is the head of the wife, so the cord teaching went, then men who refuse to take a spiritual leadership role in their homes are forcing their wives into a role that God does not intend and for which they are not suited. These rallies have not turned the tide either. The gap between the regular attendance of men and women has been largely unaffected by these rallies and retreats and seminars. But they have succeeded in increasing the cachet of a very particular view of authority in Christian community and in Christian homes. And this has resulted in a resurgence of what is often called complementarianism throughout evangelicalism. And it has even affected historically egalitarian churches, like the Church of the Nazarene. Now, you might not know what either of those terms mean. That's fine, because I'm going to define them. Complementarianism is the view that men and women, though essentially equal before God, were created for different purposes and for different tasks in the home. And traditionally, that argument was made that uh, they were created for different purposes and tasks in society as well. This view has argued that men and women were meant to complement each other and not to compete with each other, and it often presumes that spiritual leadership in the home is a task for which men were created and uniquely gifted by God. 
Egalitarianism, on the other hand, has traditionally argued that men and women were created not only essentially equal, but also pragmatically equal, and that only the fall introduced disparity between men and women in the home and in society. You remember when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of whatever kind of fruit it was of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and God cursed them. Part of the curse was that a woman's desire would be for her husband but her husband would rule over her. So egalitarians recognize that that's not part of God's design, at least that's the argument, but that it is part of the curse. And egalitarians have often argued that the gospel has intended to restore humanity to God's original intention from the beginning, and therefore Christian women and men should share leadership responsibilities and other tasks of leadership. For egalitarians, leadership responsibilities are to be delegated based on gifts and graces, quite independent of gender. So there's a lot of stuff going on trying to figure out how we're to deal with the men problem, the man problem in the church. Why do fewer men attend church than women across our country? In truth, uh, nobody knows for certain. It's been a trend that extends far back in church history. And there are lots of opinions. So I'm going to share a few that I read this week. These are not my opinions. These are opinions that I read from various sources. So see if you get on board with any of them. Is the church too bland for men, perhaps? Do we sit around talking about our feelings and our sins too much? Is it that we don't get out there and do anything? It's all about feelings. Is that why men don't come? Is it that our songs are too high-pitched and too lovey-dovey? They're not powerful enough. They're not strong enough. Is it that women are more emotional and find it easier to believe blindly than their more logical, rational male counterparts? Read that one this week. Is it that our church decor is too frilly and too feminine in most churches? The wrong colors, the wrong... Is it that men have shorter attention spans than women and our services are just too long? Is it that men want to know what to do and in the church we spend more time talking about what to think or how to feel? Are women more influenced by the needs of their children and therefore more apt to ensure a spiritual upbringing than our men? Are the male headship folks right? And men are particularly under assault by Satan because as the God-ordained spiritual leaders in the home, Satan concentrates his attacks on the head because where the head goes, the body will follow. I've read all of those in recent days. I don't find any of them biblically or historically that sustainable. But I do want to say I don't know why more women attend church than men. I can't say for certain, but I do suspect that it has something to do with Jesus. Something to do with the cross. Something to do with the very principle that Peter has been trying to articulate to the Christians in Asia Minor nearly two millennia ago. And we're going to read it again in these next verses. I suspect that many people in positions of leadership and power in our society, which is coming to include both women and men in recent decades, have stumbled and continue to stumble over the gospel insistence that followers of Jesus must submit. It's the power of submission, I think, that has something to do with the lack of male representation in church. 
If you have access to a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament epistle of 1 Peter if you're not already there. Our primary passage is 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 12, as I've said. We've already discussed 2, 11 through 3, 6 in the first two sermons of our series. So I'll begin reading this morning in verse 7. 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives, and treat them with respect as the weaker partner, and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then skip forward a little bit to 1 Peter chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. There's a thematic parallel here, so it's worth reading. 1 Peter 5 verse 1, To the elders among you, uh, some translations say overseers, other, others presbyters, to the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that's under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the, cl- the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him, because He cares for you. That's where we'll end. Now, last week we discussed Peter's words to those who had little social power in the context of the Roman Empire of the first century. Slaves and wives. In that culture, their power was severely curtailed. And Peter's exhortation to them was to embrace wholeheartedly their culture's expectations of submission. But he didn't tell them to do it out of respect for the culture, or because Rome was somehow inspired, or because those leaders somehow deserved that submission. Peter, if you remember, encouraged them to submit for the Lord's sake, that they might be personally transformed and that the gospel might be spread. But in the verses we just read together, Peter turned his attention from the powerless to the powerful. Peter's words in these verses were directed to those who were in positions of authority in the community to whom he was writing. Husbands and elders, overseers, presbyters, And Peter's exhortations to them were to embrace a certain form of submissiveness to those they had been placed over by realizing that leadership in the kingdom of God is service of others, not of oneself. Women, you might not have liked the language there, but women were the weaker partner in Roman society, not only in terms of physical brawn, but in terms of social power as well. But Peter did not make specific reference to Roman expectations in the home. 
He didn't say anything really about what the Romans would normally have cared about. He did not exhort husbands to lead their wives or to command them or to make sure that their homes ran smoothly. Those exhortations aren't here. Instead, Peter exhorted husbands to be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Be considerate and treat them with respect as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. What do you hear in those words? We'll get back to them. Peter exhorted overseers in the church or elders similarly. In Roman culture, power flowed from the top down. And it was the responsibility of rulers to keep those they ruled in order. The peace of Rome depended on that kind of a social structure and most nations on earth today and throughout history have depended on something similar. But leadership in the church looked different than that of the world. Peter's words to those who exercised authority in Christian community were these. Look again at chapter 5, verse 2. Be shepherds of God's flock. You have to remember, in the first century, shepherds were a disdained group. They were not trusted. They were considered untrustworthy. They were very low on the social ladder. Be shepherds of God's flock. That's under your care, watching over them. Not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, don't do it to profit, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted you, not exercising your authoritative muscles, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. All of you clothe yourselves with power, might, strength, authority, Humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. What do Peter's words to husbands and to church leaders imply? Well, we have to at least be able to confess where he is starting from. And it's not a comfortable position for some of us in this culture, but very comfortable for others. So we might as well get on the same page. His starting point may have been similar to that of the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, he wrote these words, But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Man was created first. And the fall in the Garden of Eden resulted in a hierarchical division in the male-female relationship in marriage. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. Consequences of the fall. So it is right to say that the man is the head of the woman in a number of ways in biblical writing. We probably shouldn't avoid it. But in the Christian family and in the Christian community, the man's headship, what it means to be the head, what it means to have authority, has been radically transformed by its correlation with Jesus. Man is not simply the head of the woman. Man is the head of the woman as Christ is the head of the church. And Jesus did not exercise His authority the way Roman rulers did. Jesus took the form of a servant and He washed His disciples' feet. You remember some of you the story from the Gospel of John. 
The anointing Spirit of God that descended on Jesus at His baptism, that normally was given to a king in the, in the Old Testament, in the First Testament, to say that He was being given God's authority to be powerful, to be the judge, to be the warrior, to be the one who leads the nation. So that anointing of the Spirit, profoundly empowering for Jesus. But He did not hoard it or keep it for Himself. Jesus breathed that Spirit on His disciples. And He poured out His Spirit on the church at Pentecost. Jesus not only said the words, but He lived a life in which the first was to be last, and the last was to be first. And those who wish to exalt themselves would be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Headship, authority, leadership in the Christian community and in Christian homes has been fundamentally turned upside down by Jesus. The less powerful continue to submit as they should, and those with power become the slaves of all. It reminds me, actually, of a story in the First Testament, in First Kings chapter 12, of King Rehoboam. Some of you may uh, recall the tale. Rehoboam was Solomon's son, and Solomon is famously known by most, uh, except for those who probably read the Bible intensively, he's known to have ruled during the Golden Age of Israel. And it was a Golden Age of Israel for Solomon and for other people who were in power because it was very wealthy and there was a big kingdom and there was a lot of prestige. But for the average person, Solomon's reign was really rough because he taxed the people horribly and he took every man he could find and made him part of the army mandatorily. And so the draft didn't go well here in America when we didn't like the battles and it didn't go well for Solomon either. So he was a very hard king for most people. So when his son is about to take over after his death on the eve of his, cor of his coronation a prominent leader named Jeroboam along with the whole assembly of Israel asked Rehoboam to be less oppressive on the people than his father had been what they're essentially asking is reduce the taxes and let's not be so warmongering let's, let's pull in the military and let's decrease it that's basically what they were asking well, that's a lot to ask, and it would have made some significant changes to a number of things, including Rehoboam's standard of living. And so uh, he asked for time to respond, which at first looks wise. And then he went to his advisors, two sets of them. Now, why the Bible wants to point this out, I don't know. You decide. But the older advisors, the ones who are old, tell Rehoboam that he should listen to the people, that he should be more gracious that he should take more the role of a servant. And then the younger advisors, I'm over here because the youth are over here, not that you're this way, but the younger advisors said to Rehoboam, no, you've got to swing that hammer, man. You've got to tell these people that they're out of place. They don't dictate to the king. The king dictates to them. You tell them, if you thought it was hard under Solomon, you guys are going to die under me because it's going to be ten times as hard. Rehoboam thinks about it and he goes, I like that, young, that's good advice. And so he did that. And he lost nine of the twelve tribes of Israel. The country divided. God gave the nine, uh, the nine northern tribes to Jeroboam. And uh, Rehoboam was left only with Judah and those who lived in their territory. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble indeed. Historically, men have had the power and authority in European and American culture. That was true in Peter's day, and it has been true through much of our history. But power and authority have been reinterpreted in the Christian church in a way that threatens those who have power. 
and destabilizes the clean and neat hierarchies we've built for ourselves in our homes and our nations. Probably one of the reasons Jesus said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. He said that in the context of families being broken up because of the gospel. To those with power, God has said in Jesus, share it. Share it. By lifting up the weak and by making yourself servants of all. I suspect that that message has never been truly attractive to the powerful. And this may help to explain why Christianity has often had less of an appeal to men historically. And why its appeal is waning today, even among women. Because in contemporary cultures, social power in our world is becoming more equally shared among genders. But there is a power in submission that the powerful often fail to recognize. And it is the very power of God. God opposes the proud, but God's heart is for the humble. We've all heard the adage, haven't we? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And power and control often do prove to be corrupting. But Jesus Himself has shown humanity that power not only corrupts, but it borrows from a system that is inherently corrupted. It's not that some are corrupted by power, it's that power itself is corrupted. And so cannot be used without becoming corrupting. To use the words of J.R.R. Tolkien that we began the series with, power itself may be the one ring that rules them all. It may be that thing that we try to wield for good purposes and ends up twisting us into something we were not when we began. In fact, I think that's why Tolkien called it a ring of power. I think he saw that. Peter did not say that there would be no hierarchies in the world after the coming of Jesus. He doesn't say that. But he did remind us that those who follow and those who lead in the kingdom of God must do so in the footsteps of Jesus. And Jesus left His glory in heaven. Jesus was God. Jesus is God Almighty, eternal, immune to death, immune to pain and to suffering, as far as we can tell. He spoke the world into being. He left all that behind. He took the form of a human, a servant, in the words of Paul in Philippians, that he might lift up sinful humans and make them co-heirs with him of God's glory. The powerless follow Jesus as they watch him submit to God. The powerful follow Jesus as they watch him submit to his followers. Did you catch in verse 7 that husbands should be considerate and respectful of their wives, treating them as co-heirs with them so that their prayers may not be hindered. What does that mean? Well, Peter gets around to it, I think, as he goes through a whole list of things and then returns to that very theme in verse 12 of chapter 3. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
The implication, I believe, is that by failing to lead in the way Jesus led, by failing to be considerate and respectful, by failing to share authority and privilege, the Lord will not hear the prayers of husbands. Read the powerful. Our access to God, even in prayer, is dependent on our willingness to make ourselves servants and to share our authority liberally. The power of submission is access to God Himself through prayer. And the promise of God is to lift up those who humble themselves. This is a word not only to the weak in society, but to the strong as well. For in the kingdom of God, we are all one in Christ. We are all priests. Peter just, he's, he's, he's trumping the same drum in a million different ways. Perhaps the socially marginalized hear this message more easily and therefore flock to it more readily than the socially powerful do. In the end, I can't say for certain why fewer men attend church. But I will say that the gospel of Jesus does not allow us to twist our message into one that appeals to the powerful or appeals to the aggressive or appeals to the combative or to the controlling. Jesus humbled himself when he became human and he humbled himself unto death, even death on a cross. And he shared of the spirit and authority given to him with all who would follow after him. In Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 35, we find the following recollection. They, this is Jesus and his disciples, came to Capernaum. When he, Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, What were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting, and what they mean is who was going to be first among the apostles. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And in Peter's words, Humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that He may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. This is the message of the Gospel. We must embrace submission if we're to follow Jesus. And submission is not a message that will ever be that appealing to the powerful. And it's also unlikely to be appealing to the actively oppressed because they think that the teaching of, of submission will somehow be used by the powerful to try and beat them into submission, and they resist it too. It's an obstacle for lots of people. But for those who have ears to hear and eyes to see, submission is the very power of God in this world. Through submission, Jesus has reconciled humanity to God and made way for the hope of eternal life. And through our submission to each other and to the world, the power of God will be unleashed in the world. God will hear our prayers, and God in His good time will lift us up. So if, if, if the problem for men in the church, if one of the people is right that we're not practical enough, here's some practical things. How do you submit to governing authorities? I don't know. Do you speed? Think about it. Do you pay your taxes? Think about it. Do you follow the laws of the governments to the best of your ability unless they cause you to disobey God directly? How do you do it in the home? If you're a person at work or in the home who has authority, do you share that authority? Do you empower the people beneath you? Do you lift them up? Do you give them trust? Or are they your slaves and your servants to do your will? There's riskiness, isn't there, in submission? If you're an employee or someone in a home where you don't exercise very much power, like a child, how do you relate to those in authority over you? Do you submit to them? 
Do you show respect and honor to them even when you disagree, even when you think that they're ridiculous, even when you think that you're having to follow the stupidest person that God ever put on this green earth? Do you respect them? Do you trust them? At least through your behavior? These are the practical ways in which submission comes home. Somehow we have to figure out what it means to live out consistently submission. In Paul's words, I always have to go back to Paul. He and Peter are of a, of a, of a mind on this, I think. Submit yourselves one to another. It is through submission we have been saved. And it is through submission the world will be changed. There is no other way. We can try. It will never work. Because God's not with it. The power of God is with those who submit. And this is the gospel of Jesus. And it's our challenge today. Will you embrace submission?